Welcome to Outside the Box. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Jim, how are you? Great oh, to see you. Good. This is going to be a good show. I think this would be a great show. It's a, you know, we're talking about the, um, the Middle East, nothing like a quiet conversation about the cradle of civilization where uh, there's never been a dull moment in the last 2,000 years, unfortunately. Not a uh, controversial topic <laughs> in any way. So. And, you know, today we have uh, a, a couple of guests, which I think uh, are, are going to be really great for this conversation. They uh, are the uh, Justice Smith, who's the chief operating officer of J Street, and Dylan Williams, who really runs their legislative team. I'll talk a little bit more about both of them in, in, in a minute. But J Street itself, I think we should uh, you know, put, in, uh, put it in at the outset here, is a uh, an organization that has been gaining uh, a lot more influence uh, on, on Capitol Hill on a lot of issues. They are pro-Israel. They're also pro-peace. Um, in, uh, in their statement of intent, they say they believe that only a negotiated resolution agreed to by Israelis and Palestinians can meet the legitimate needs and national aspirations of both peoples. Uh, that's a big bite. <laughs> um, but... Uh, this will be a good conversation about the entire region. Great. Well, this is uh, really timely because uh, we're just past an administration um, who, in my opinion, uh, has moved the United States uh, closer to the position of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud government um, than any other uh, administration, uh, I think, in American history. They've recognized Israeli sovereignty over the uh, occupied Golan Heights. Uh, they moved the embassy um, to, from Tel Aviv to uh, Jerusalem. Not that that was unexpected, except it was supposed to happen in, the, uh, uh, in connection with the final status negotiations uh, of a peace agreement. Uh, between uh, it, the Israelis uh, and the Palestinians. Uh, they played a role in uh, brokering uh, the historic Abraham Accords, which have uh, normalized relations uh, between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, uh, and Israel's relationship with a number of other uh, Arab states is uh, similarly uh, advancing along those lines. Uh, and finally, the Trump administration repudiated one of the signature uh, foreign policy initiatives of the Obama administration by withdrawing uh, from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, uh, more uh, briefly known as the uh, Iran nuclear deal. So President Trump's out of office, uh, President uh, Biden uh, was inaugurated um, in January. Um, and the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, remains frozen. Um, the new Biden administration has come in, uh, committed to re-engaging uh, Iran uh, on the nuclear deal, but there are a lot of issues that uh, uh, have been tacked onto that um, that are gonna uh, present a challenge. But it seems to me nothing better illustrates the uh, change in tone between the two administrations, how much is substance, how much is tone, 
Um, but reportedly, at least since the inauguration, um, uh, Israel's prime minister um, and America's new president uh, have not spoken. Um, and so uh, whether uh, U.S.-Israel relations uh, in this uh, uh, very new uh, environment created uh, uh, by the Biden administration. Uh, I've heard a lot about J Street. And uh, when Jim had uh, mentioned um, that J Street's uh, COO, uh, Jess Smith, uh, had uh, worked for him before and that he thought uh, he could get uh, her and her colleague, Dylan Williams, to uh, join us on the Outside the Box uh, podcast. Uh, I was uh, absolutely uh, thrilled. Um, so, uh, Jim? Uh, well, we're, yeah, we're, we're really pleased that, uh, that uh, Jess and Dylan can both come. Let me tell you a little bit about the background. And one of the things that I want to do, just uh, to alert Jess and, and Dylan, is uh, a number of the questions that I want to ask today are going to be on your organizational structure, the kinds of things that uh, you have been been doing in order to move your viewpoint of uh, the issues in the Middle East toward policy. Uh, just to start off with, uh, you know, Jess is the CEO, as I said. Dylan is the senior vice president for policy and strategy. He he runs their government affairs program. They both graduated from Cornell University. Dylan is a double grad. He graduated from the law school. And I, I just have to say, since my wife graduated from Cornell Law, I don't know how this goes over at Notre Dame, but I'm, just not, I'm not gonna pick a dog in that fight today. Um, and uh, Dylan has worked on Capitol Hill in the Senate uh, for uh, Senator Olympia Snow. He recently was has been named one of the Hill's top lobbyists for six years in a row. Jess has broad experience in private sector, in government as a communications specialist, public affairs specialist and policy. Yes, she worked for me for a number of years. She did a tremendous job as my communications director when I was in the Senate. So we're pleased to have both of you uh, with us. And um, if you could just briefly give us a, a summation of uh, you know, J Street's mission and the way that it fits into your approach on the American political system. Yeah, absolutely. I'll go ahead and, and, and go first. Mike, uh, thanks for having us. Uh, Jim, as somebody who has worked for you, it's just a pleasure to be with you and, uh, and to be your guest here. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, a privilege uh, and a pleasure. So let me talk to you a little bit about J Street. Uh, we are, um, as Mike mentioned earlier, we are a pro-Israel, pro-peace organization. And we say that we were created to become a home for pro-Israel, pro-peace Americans. Um, and let me explain a little bit about what that means. Um, we are supportive of a better future for Israelis, um, but also Palestinians. And we believe strongly that uh, greater stability and security will come to the region and for both people if we can solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So our job since we were founded a dozen years ago has been to uh, shift and to shape the political conversation to allow the White House and members of Congress uh, to have the ability to speak and make policy through this pro-Israel, pro-peace, 
pro-diplomacy lens. And when we started uh, almost 13 years ago now, um, that wasn't happening. Uh, and that climate and that kind of conversation and the tone and tenor of the conversation was not uh, properly reflective of where American Jews are politically. So of course, the rhinoceros in the room is uh, the uh, counterpart, uh, shall we say, uh, to, uh, to J Street. Um, uh, you may be sensitive about, uh, you know, Macy's and Gimbel's talking about the, uh, the competition, uh, but maybe say a little bit uh, more uh, about uh, how the discussion uh, of Israel and U.S.-Israel relations needed to change and uh, what J, J Street in particular uh, brings to that conversation. Maybe yeah. Dylan would uh, pick that up. Sure, happy to. And it's a pleasure uh, to be on this podcast. Um, I think as Jess probably experienced as I did when we were both serving uh, as staffers in the Senate at the same time, when you first meet with some of the groups that have claimed to represent Jewish Americans as well as other pro-Israel Americans for decades, and you first meet with them on Capitol Hill, you know, there's an initial excitement and an assumption of camaraderie uh, that you are pro-Israel, they are pro-Israel, oftentimes if, if you're a Jewish person, you're, you're meeting with Jewish supporters of Israel. Um, but then the policies they actually push for, and often the words they use are very out of touch with where many of us uh, as Jewish Americans are on this issue. And prior to J Street, it was the assumption of staff and members that, well, this is what the majority view of the Jewish American community is. And those of us who felt differently assumed we must be in the minority. And I think the innovation of J Street is for people involved in policymaking and lawmaking is to show them that the actual clear majority view, particularly of Jewish Americans, is not aligned with where these older right-leaning groups are, nor the policies they are pushing on Capitol Hill and to US administrations. Jewish Americans overwhelmingly favor a much more pro-diplomacy approach, a much more pro-Palestinian pro approach alongside a pro-Israel approach, because Jewish Americans want to preserve overwhelmingly Israel as a democratic homeland for the Jewish people. And they see the ongoing conflict and particularly the deepening occupation as a threat to that future for Israel, which they cherish. Uh, and so J Street really has created a sea change in understanding in Washington, DC about where Jewish Americans really are, as well as what the political consequences really are for adhering to a policy which is much more in line with our community's thinking. I was pretty impressed when uh, we were talking a while ago about the uh, growth of support in the American Congress uh, for the, the J Street position. And could, could you outline that growth from where it was, say, uh, a few years ago to where it is now? People who signed up for the, uh, in support of the J Street during the campaign? 
Yeah, I'm happy to jump in here. Um, and Jim, one thing I want to just say um, from the offset is uh, when you were in the Senate, one of your favorite lines that you would use regularly was that everybody deserves an advocate. And um, I think that that's the essence of why J Street was born is because um, exactly what Dylan said, which is that for so long, uh, the minority, a minority viewpoint on what it meant to be pro-Israel and uh, what it meant to carry Jewish values and hold a certain value set when it comes to foreign policy, uh, a minority view was being presented as a majority view. And it, it wasn't properly reflecting where American Jews are, like I said earlier. Um, so we started in 2008. Uh, uh, Jim, you were uh, newly in the Senate yourself, so started this journey around the same time, uh, and we had uh, we were a very uh, we were a very scrappy organization. Um, I believe we endorsed uh, forty members uh, in our inaugural year um, and raised about half a million dollars. And today we just finished up the 2020 cycle, uh, supporting 198 candidates, including uh, Joe Biden. Uh, we got involved in uh, the presidential election for the first time in J Street's history. Um, and we raised more than $9 million uh, for political candidates, uh, all at the federal level. So House, Senate, and, and the presidential campaign. Um, you both know by DC standards, uh, $9 million uh, for a PAC is, is quite significant. Uh, so we have grown quite a bit in our dozen years on the scene. We now represent uh, uh, about 150 members of Congress in both the House and the Senate, um, and we represent the majority of Democrats in both the House and the Senate. So we've come a long way since we started. So the political landscape uh, in the space of US-Israel relations uh, has become uh, very, very complex, at least to somebody like me who's, uh, you know, an outsider looking in. Um, I have little doubt that uh, J Street speaks uh, for um, a certain segment uh, of the American Jewish community, particularly the uh, younger uh, part of it. But it seems to me um, that there are some other forces out there that must make your lives um, uh, political lives, I mean, somewhat challenging. Uh, first of all, in the American scene, uh, it's no longer just a Jewish issue. Um, there is a large non-Jewish uh, block um, in uh, the American political space uh, that feels it has a, uh, a dog in this fight. Uh, you know, many uh, evangelical Christians who identify as Christian Zionists and interpret that to uh, have a uh, you know, particular political agenda. So that, that must be one challenge. I'd like to sort of hear your thoughts about how you're, you're navigating that. Second issue is uh, Israel itself and the uh, dominance of uh, Likud um, and Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's, is he now the longest serving Israeli Prime Minister, um, and I, I, I'm sure, you know, not everything that uh, his bloc uh, represents politically um, is disagreeable um, to, uh, you know, the sort of progressive pro-Israel community, but a lot of it is. Um, and 
there's another election, I guess, uh, that's imminent there, and who knows how it's uh, it's going to turn out. But uh, I, I I can't help but think that you're navigating an incredibly complex political landscape these days, probably a lot different, you know, than it was a generation ago uh, in working these uh, political issues. Um, so how do you think about it, Jess? Yeah, let me let me answer and then Dylan, uh, feel free to chime in here too. Um, I do think that the landscape has changed quite a bit in terms of the political dynamics here in, in, in the United States. Um, you know, APAC and some of the other uh, players in town who were representative of this more right wing, more hawkish point of view when it came to Israel um, for a very long time did represent, uh, uh, they, they were, uh, their, their base w was American Jews and, and that's shifting quite a bit uh, to evangelical Christians, uh, uh, to a, a different audience than I think the organization was in originally created uh, to represent. Um, you saw it also with, uh, when the when President Trump made the uh, Jerusalem, the, the embassy move to Jerusalem, you had a number of evangelicals up on stage with him. I think there were more evangelical Christians uh, and some pretty provocative characters too up on stage with him talking about, um, you know, what, why this was, you know, uh, the calling and why this needed to happen. And so you had some Orthodox Jews and then an overwhelming number of evangelicals uh, standing on the stage as well, uh, some of whom are not always the most friendly to, to Jews, uh, mind you, right, uh, and have said pretty provocative anti-Semitic things. Uh, I find that to be scary. Uh, I don't think that these are uh, always our allies and, and folks that we should um, be partnering with because I'm not sure that they have American uh, uh, Jews' uh, best interests at heart. So I think that's a real challenge to deal with. Um, we have on the, the second um, issue that you mentioned in terms of um, Benjamin Netanyahu and, and his agenda uh, and the Likud party, et cetera, uh, we've done extensive polling of the American Jewish community you know, here in the States. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's uh, approval ratings among American Jews, at least, are, are quite low. Uh, and I think that they... Um, they got lower still uh, because there was uh, this, this strong alliance and allegiance between Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and uh, American Jews largely don't have an appetite for um, a right-wing philosophy. Uh, somewhere in the 80% of, of, of American Jews consider themselves more left-leaning, 77% uh, approval rating for uh, Joe Biden and uh, very high disapproval ratings of Donald Trump. So it's a very complex relationship. Um, and uh, it is something that, that we, we get the privilege of, of dealing with uh, day in and day out when we're uh, working on foreign policy in this space. So Dylan, so Dylan, Dylan you're else. the strategist for uh, J Street. Um, how do you negotiate this uh, complex uh, political landscape? Well, it is getting increasingly complex, but it's also becoming much more clear to American politicians and policymakers exactly where their various constituencies are. Uh, and as Jess mentioned, the rise of evangelical Zionists 
as an organized political force on this issue is relatively new. And it mirrors approximately the same time frame uh, in which it has become more clear through the efforts of J Street and others to policymakers that Jewish Americans are overwhelmingly uh, in a much more progressive stance on these issues that had been assumed in the past. But what's interesting about this is that the incorporation of evangelical Zionists in a very pro-settlement uh, way for the expansion of Israel into the Palestinian territories uh, was a choice deliberately made by conservative elements of the Republican Party with the help of older right-leaning pro-Israel groups. Around the time that President Obama came into office, uh, it was decided uh, in the right wing that they would criticize President Obama as insufficiently supportive of Israel or worse. This despite the fact that the policies that Obama pursued on Israel-Palestine were objectively to the right of where previous Republican administrations like the Reagan administration, like the George H.W. Bush administration had been on some of these uh, issues. The result of that is that Republican lawmakers feel compelled to take an increasingly pro-settlement uh, position when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And by settlement, of course, I'm not referring to a negotiated settlement or, or a peace agreement. I am referring to the uh, Israeli settlements in the Palestinian territory in the West Bank that are a violation of international law and which undermine, among other things, the prospects for a, uh, a peaceful negotiation brought about by the agreed emergence of a Palestinian state. The result of all this deliberate choice by the right wing has been to partisanize this issue. And this is something that J Street and most American Jews are really concerned about. You know, the way J Street navigates this issue is to remind lawmakers and others that the policies we support have been the bipartisan policy of U.S. administrations, both Republican and Democratic, for at least 25 years uh, officially and out in the open, if not for much longer. Uh, you know, ever since 1967, Republican and Democratic administrations have been pushing toward a two-state solution. Though, of course, the first time they did it in, in name was under George W. Bush. Um, the Trump administration, uh, playing to this new dynamic, playing to the, these evangelical Zionists, which have raised support for the settlements up to the status of a conservative culture war issue, uh, departed from that bipartisan consensus and did a lot of damage in the process. So I think uh, you're- Let me uh, jump in here just, just, just real quick on, on something. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Dylan and, and Jess, um, how you uh, view as an organization at J Street and then also the American Jewish community, the issues with respect to the Palestinians domestically in, in Israel, some of it, the well-being of the Palestinians, the opportunities that are available for them, the issue of the Gaza Strip, and also the issues here on, on uh, boycott, uh, those sorts of things. I want to keep Iran out of that because I know Mike uh, has a question on the 
on the Iran situation. But uh, you know, in terms of American uh, public opinion, uh, Jewish American public opinion, J Street's positions on that, and what you see um, domestically in Israel. Dylan, you want me to take some of this and then I can have you get into some more policy uh, questions. Um, so it's a great question. Uh, and I think, um, listen, I think uh, the people that are supportive of, of J Street are here for a whole host of reasons. Uh, a, a, number of, uh, uh, a number of our supporters um, and American Jews are, are very pro-Israel and uh, for they, they want to support Israel and they believe that supporting Israel and caring about the state of Israel means solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, period, right? That in order to actually care about and invest in the, in, in the state that they hold so dear, we need to actually bring stability and security to the region. So that's a very common position. Now there are uh, a host of other people who it's a much more complex relationship, especially young Americans. Um, but I'd, I'd suggest uh, uh, our audience writ large does care also about some of the humanitarian concerns that um, we're seeing in the Middle East. Uh, there is a great deal of sympathy for a minority group of people, the Palestinians who are living under occupation, um, who don't have, uh, some don't have running water, basic, necessities of life. Uh, yeah, there are, like I said, humanitarian concerns across the board. Um, it's hard to ignore those things, especially as American Jews who have been in similar scenarios ourselves as a minority religion and an oppressed people. Um, so, uh, and when you go to the West Bank and you see the Palestinian territories, when you see the Gaza Strip, um, it's hard to unsee that stuff. Uh, it's hard not to bring your heart to these uh, conditions and to these scenarios as well. I want to read just a couple of statistics that um, that we have in our polling, um, because you asked uh, Mike, uh, or I'm sorry, you asked Jim uh, how American Jews see this. Um, first of all, 82% of Jewish voters are uncomfortable with Israeli settlements, and these are um, these are huge uh, pieces of construction developments that are encroaching into the West Bank of the Palestinian territories. Uh, so again, 82% of, of American Jews are uncomfortable with that. Um, there's only 15% of American Jews who support annexation of the West Bank. So you can see the majority versus the minority position. Um, there is also a healthy percentage of um, uh, of uh, American Jews who would like to see uh, a financial support, humanitarian support turned back on for Palestinian territories. Uh, I should note that in the last four years, uh, every year the Appropriations Committee uh, has appropriated uh, humanitarian aid toward the Palestinian territories and President Trump turned that spigot off and wouldn't allow the monies to flow. Um, that's a big concern for American Jews. We want to see fairness. Uh, we'd like to see the United States in an, an orbiting role uh, where we're treating the region even-handedly um, and we're giving proper support both to the Palestinians and also uh, supporting Israel when we can. So that's a little bit of the, the flavor and the texture. Dylan, if you want to add anything else uh, from a policy perspective, I'd love for you to do so. Sure. On top of what Jess said about where Jewish Americans are on these issues, it's important to recognize that this these positions actually have a 
strong base of support within Israel uh, itself. Um, a plurality of Israelis support a two-state solution as the best outcome. Uh, Israelis overwhelmingly want to maintain Israel as a democratic state uh, with a Jewish character. And Israelis do want to see uh, uh, an improved situation in the Palestinian territories. And what's overlooked so often in the discussions in the United States on these issues is that the Israeli security establishment is some of, contains some of the most vocal proponents uh, of these positions. In fact, I'd go so far to say, as to say that J Street has never taken a position that runs counter to the thinking of the consensus of the Israeli security establishment. That is not something that can be said to, about, by groups to our right, which are constantly taking steps to frustrate progress towards a two-state solution uh, and which are promoting much more hawkish views associated with Israel's political leaders, but not their security establishment. So that raises a very interesting paradox because in my experience uh, with Israelis, including people in the uh, security establishment, uh, you're absolutely right. On the other hand, it seems to me, again, as an outside observer, um, that the two-state solution is further away now uh, than it's ever been. Last time I was in Israel, we drove from uh, Kinneret down to Jerusalem through the uh, Jordan Valley. And I, I couldn't tell when I was in Israel and when uh, I was in the, uh, the territories. Um, and so in, in a weird sort of way, despite the fact that smart people uh, in the Israeli government understand uh, that absorbing the territories um, is going to be self-defeating, and the fact that majorities would be happy to, uh, you know, make peace on a territorial swap basis, we seem to be moving further and further uh, away from it with the facts on the ground. Uh, why is, you know, what, why is the consensus um, not shaping policy and, uh what are the grounds for optimism that that will change? You're exactly right that the situation on the ground grows more dire by the day. Uh, and it's not just, you know, in terms of the deepening of the occupation and the impact that that has on the Palestinian people, but it's also just the practical impact uh, and increases the threshold of the physical changes that would need to be made to bring about a viable two-state solution. And of course, the politics seem to be driving away even further, at least on the ground there, from it as well. But the two-state solution is still the most viable option, and not just practically and physically, but politically uh, as well. And that's for the simple reason, kind of like the old saying about democracy, is that it's the least bad option out there for both peoples. If you look at the two main alternatives as people present them uh, or outcomes to this conflict. You know, one is the one state solution, so-called solution on the right, which is to say that Israel will extend its sovereignty over the entirety 
uh, of the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, and we'll get some rights, but not full rights. Well, that's not going to be an acceptable outcome to the Palestinian people. Uh, that would just be a recipe for permanent occupation and continued conflict. On the other side, if you look at those who tend to be on the left and advocate uh, a single binational state uh, where every person has a vote uh, in that single binational state, it does sound like a very democratic outcome, but again, it's not one for which there is any sort of a political horizon. I mean, if we look at the fact that right now that many Israelis and particularly uh, the Israeli government doesn't want to give up roughly a third uh, control of a third of the land uh, uh, between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River to a Palestinian state, why would anyone assume it's feasible that they are instead going to give up control over 100% of the land by agreeing to a binational state in which non-Jews would be the majority? It just doesn't make political sense. Uh, they Jewish Israelis would opt for a two-state solution well before uh, they uh, uh, opted for a single binational state. So the two-state solution is in some way the only inevitable outcome of this conflict. The question is how much more suffering is there going to be between now and then? And at J Street, we, alongside the Israeli security establishment, alongside the majority of American Jews, want that process to begin as soon as possible uh, so we can get to that only viable solution and save both peoples from decades of further suffering. Do you see a, a, a roadmap on how to get there? I think at this point, two things need to happen. Number one, there do need to be changes on the ground to preserve the possibility of uh, the physical manifestation of a two-state solution. And what that means is things like settlement expansion, things like de facto annexation of Palestinian territory by Israel has to stop. Uh, and that is going to take some real tough love from Israel's uh, friends in the international community, including the United States. The other thing that needs to happen uh, is there needs to be a refocus in terms of the peace process itself uh, on a much more regional and international context. Uh, we were talking earlier about the recent normalization agreements between Israel and a number of Arab countries. Uh, these are good developments in the sense that it is good when Israel uh, makes peace with and starts to have closer relationships uh, with its neighbors. It's of course not a substitute for a resolution to the underlying conflict with the Palestinians, but it does provide a course for regionally focused negotiations where you have multiple parties at the table to help guide Israelis and Palestinians to an outcome that is acceptable to both and acceptable to the region at large. One of the fatal flaws of past attempts at trying to reach a two-state solution uh, is that it's just been Israel and the Palestinians essentially at a blank table with the United States more or less serving tea. Uh, that is not a recipe for success. That is not how conflicts in the real world at any level uh, actually reach 
uh, a resolution. There need to be parameters, a framework put on the table. There needs to be consultation and full buy-in and participation at the table with supporting parties that are gonna have significant obligation in terms of security, in terms of compensation at the end of that agreement. I think the normalization agreements with Israel that have just been signed, while they do have some concerning flaws, uh, do show that a much more viable process can be achieved through a carefully constructed regional approach as opposed to the failed approach of direct bilateral negotiations. So Dylan, let me ask you and Jess uh, a little bit to read the tea leaves about the uh, Biden administration and uh, specifically uh, whether um, they're willing to adopt a little bit more uh, tough love um, in terms of uh, nudging both sides uh, towards you know, what seems like the, uh, the obvious solution. And one question particularly that I've been wondering is how many of the uh, Trump uh, policies uh, would the Biden people be willing to take on? Um, and it seems to me there, there are a couple of obvious ones. I mentioned at the beginning, um, the assumption has been all along that eventually Jerusalem would be the capital uh, uh, of both countries and that uh, certainly would be the, the capital of Israel as it pretty much is now. And that in the wake of a uh, negotiated settlement, the US would move its embassy. Well, President Trump sort of <laughs> put the cart before the, uh, the horse on that. Um, everybody I think regards uh, Golan as uh, in a way a settled issue. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, the United States has resisted uh, conceding that, I think, again, in the context that, you know, this would be something uh, that would be uh, rectified um, in the uh, final status uh, uh, arrangements of any larger peace deal. Um, aside from the uh, Iran uh, nuclear deal, which we should talk a lot more about that down the road, do you think the Biden administration uh, will take on uh, and maybe reverse any of these other things that the previous administration has done that you know uh, are directly related to uh, uh, U.S.-Israel relations? So I think the Biden administration rightly is focusing on the biggest uh, priorities <laughs> that face our country and the globe, uh, the coronavirus. Uh, economic consequences of the pandemic, climate change, uh, regional power issues beyond the Middle East. That being said, uh, you know, it is clear that the resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not a day one issue for this administration, nor necessarily should it be, given the roster of things that need to be dealt with immediately. Um, what we have seen from the administration is a good and cautious start to unwind some of the harm that the Trump administration did on this. We've already seen public declarations from the Biden administration that they intend to restore the bilateral relationship with the Palestinians, both in terms of restoring aid, uh, as well as restoring uh, diplomatic missions, both in Jerusalem 
and in Washington, D.C. We've seen the administration make clear that it wants to re-engage with international organizations that the previous administration had stopped U.S. participation in over concerns related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, namely UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, which it you know, provides essential services to Palestinian refugees, uh, as well as the UN Human Rights Council, which the United States under Trump had left uh, over concerns of anti-Israel bias. Um, and we've also seen the administration begin to state their opposition to unilateral moves by either party and importantly, they specified their opposition, once again, to settlement expansion and to unilateral annexation. At the same time, there are a few things that the administration, just a few weeks in uh, to taking office, uh, has yet to get to. Uh, and I think a lot of what they intend to do on this issue uh, will be, it has yet to be seen. You know, I'm thinking specifically of a number of the steps that the Trump administration did to actually legitimize settlements in the West Bank uh, and try and demonstrate that the United States under Trump regarded them as part of Israel. There were a number of moves like this, but perhaps the clearest one was a reversal of a longstanding customs rule. Uh, for many decades, it was the United States customs rule that goods produced in the settlements had to be labeled as made in the West Bank uh, to be able to be sold in the United States. They could not be labeled made in Israel. The Trump administration turned that rule on its head. And uh, in March, unless this rule is uh, changed back, in March, those settlement products must be required to be made in Israel to be sold in the United States. You know, that's an example of a move that we are hoping the Biden administration will quickly undo. Uh, so I think what's maybe uh, the, the thing that has yet to be put in place by the administration on these issues uh, are senior level uh, officials who are devoted entirely to them. Namely, the US ambassador to Israel has yet to be nominated uh, as well as the assistant secretary of state for Near Eastern Affairs. There are absolutely wonderful and talented foreign policy experts who have been placed in positions above and just below those uh, throughout the, the national security and foreign policy structure of the Biden administration, but those two critical roles remain open. So I think a lot remains to be seen. Let me uh, start the discussion on the Iran situation. But, uh, start with, with just because I think this, you will remember some of the positions that I took uh, in the Senate and then later. Um, in the Senate, when I came to the Senate, I was one of those who was calling for opening up uh, discussions with Iran to try to bring them into, in, into the table. Uh, I was opposed to the notion of declaring the, uh, the uh, Iranian uh, guard uh, a, a terrorist organization uh, because it was de facto saying that we were at war with Iran because it was a part of the actual governmental structure of Iran. But I was the only uh, Democratic candidate for president who opposed the Iran nuclear deal. And I, and I did so because of the concern that I had from reading that deal that it was 
sort of recognizing that eventually Iran was going to become a nuclear power. It just left it open that we would push this down the road a bit. And so I'm wondering what your position has, has been on that is J Street and what your thoughts are about that question. Yeah, thanks for the question, Jim. Um, so uh, we at J Street were very involved uh, when the JCPOA uh, first came to be. And, and it actually predates my, my tenure at J Street because I started four years ago. So I want Dylan to, to dive in here more. Um, we were very uh, strongly on board. I, I know it wasn't your position, although I do think, um, I think that we are incredibly aligned on so many different aspects here in terms of ensuring that you are not provoking a bad situation, right? And, and doing provocative moves that um, help exacerbate a, a, a challenging situation. Um, but this is our viewpoint uh, here at the organization is very in line with where American Jews are uh, in our 2020 polling um, just last November, 94% um, of American Jews want to get back into the JCPOA and favor Americans uh, American foreign policy doing that um, and, and Biden taking a lead on that. So um, let me though turn it over to Dylan so he can talk through a little bit of the background here and, and what we're aiming to do now um, in terms of moving this forward. So in the summer of 2015, when Congress was reviewing uh, the nuclear agreement, you know, I was, I, I think it was, the one time where I can honestly say, at least on the Democratic side of the aisle, every single lawmaker actually took the time to understand the issue forward and back. Uh, just an incredibly high level of analysis was done by the members themselves, by their staff, uh, and we were happy to be a part of the outside effort to provide that uh, information. And I think it was very reasonable at the time for uh, lawmakers and others to not be sure 100% uh, that the uh, agreement would work. Uh, it was a very good agreement. It had the support of international experts, the Israeli security establishment uh, as well, uh, and the majority of Jewish Americans, but reasonable people could disagree because it was untested at the time. And I remember in particular Senator Cory Booker's statement when he came out in support of the deal was about six pages long, and I think made a very good case uh, uh, about how one could reasonably have concerns about the deal. About half of his statement was actually making the case uh, that opponents of the deal uh, were, were setting out. Uh, but at the end of the day, he decided on balance. Uh, it was better to support the agreement. And I think for the three or so years that the agreement was fully implemented, uh, that view was validated. And so I think we're in a very different position here in 2021 than folks were in 2015 because we have the benefit of seeing how the two approaches worked or didn't work. For the time the JCPOA was uh, in place prior to President Trump's breach of the agreement, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, confirmed that Israel, uh, sorry, that Iran was meeting its obligations under the agreement. When we saw President Trump break that agreement and then begin a maximum pressure campaign uh, of putting every single sanction one could think of, quite literally, 
uh, on Iran and trying to isolate it on the world stage, exactly as the uh, right wing opponents of the JCPOA had argued should be done from the beginning, we've seen a disastrous outcome. Iran is now enriching uranium, both at a higher volume and to a higher level of enrichment than uh, uh, it was when President Trump took office. Iran's destabilizing activities in the region have only increased. And they've been empowered uh, in terms, their hardliners have been empowered to the point that they openly launched missiles at United States troops uh, in the region. So we now have a record of success in terms of the terms of the deal and a record of failure when one doesn't abide by the deal. Now, in terms of the length of the deal and whether it actually results in Iran facing serious constraints in terms of its nuclear program in the out years, while there were sunsets and are sunsets uh, on some of the nuclear activity uh, written into the agreement, the prohibition on Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon is permanent. The requirement that Iran abide not only by the non-proliferation treaty, but by the extremely restrictive additional protocol is permanent. And the requirement that Iran subject itself to an unprecedentedly stringent inspections regime to ensure its perpetual compliance with that additional protocol is permanent. And those alone provide much more comfort and insight and intelligence about what the Iranians are doing with their nuclear program than not having a deal would. We very much would support uh, additional restrictions on Iran's nuclear program being negotiated after a return to the JCPOA by all parties. But it is just going to be a political necessity for both parties, the United States and Iran, to return to compliance with that agreement to begin the process of negotiating a follow-on agreement that doesn't necessarily have to be limited to its nuclear activities. I think the Biden administration has made clear that it also wants to seek diplomatic resolution on Iran's other concerning behavior as well. But the ticket me, to get to that table- me, uh, yep, We're, we're gonna run out of time here in a minute and I know Mike wants to say something, but just, just for the record, I want, I want you to know, I, I, there's a lot of stuff that you said I don't particularly agree with. You know, and I don't think this was an either or situation with respect to the, uh, the uh, nuclear agreement itself. And I think the, you know, the, the water was considerably muddied after, uh, you know, you know in, the, in the past few years. But, you know, when, when we have uh, uh, decided that the Iran Revolutionary Guards is a terrorist organization and it's inside the body of a government, that's a provocation. And, it, and uh, you know, I, I'm one of those who really believe that perhaps we could have gotten a better deal. I'm not saying we shouldn't have had a deal. And then there are timelines and some of the things you're saying. So um, I hope that, you know, if they move forward. And of course, the other thing right now is Iran sees that the international community has, has committed itself you know, to, to this uh, pre preceding agreement. And that's one of the reasons that they're taking some of the positions that they are. I just I have a, I have a, a, a real concern by not for, by not saying specifically 
you, you know, if, if Iran obtains a nuclear weapon, there will be consequences. And that, you know, that had, that was not specifically said. And for the good of the region and for the balance of the region with Iran, Saudi, and, and, and Israel being the three major, major power centers in the region. But I want to stop right there because I know Mike's really wants to say something on this and we're, we're getting uh, pretty much toward the end here. Yeah, thanks, Jim. And for the record, I, I agree uh, largely with Dylan uh, about you know how we should judge um, the three years uh, of the JCPOA um, as working. But Jim's comments, I think, illustrate um, the challenge um, that the uh, Biden administration is uh, is going to face. Um, you know, I. Dylan said, and maybe I don't want to mischaracterize you, but uh, you said that you hope that we'll go back to the original JCPOA and then we'll think about a subsequent uh, either modification of that uh, or uh, a new agreement covering things like uh, Iranian activities in Iraq or Syria. Uh, or Yemen, or you know, wherever else uh, they're uh, misbehaving. Uh, ballistic missiles is another uh, sort of big issue. Um, and I wonder if um, the Biden administration, if they're inclined to try to go back to the JCPOA basically as it was when the Trump administration got out of it, if they aren't gonna run into a buzzsaw uh, of people who are going to say, no, uh, it was in fact flawed because it didn't uh, cover these other issues. The other wild card is, it seems to me, and tell me if you think I'm misreading this, um, that a new actor um, has been legitimized or a new set of actors have been legitimized in this process. And that's uh, the Gulf states uh, and uh, you know, the Arab world more generally. Um, you know, they weren't party to the original JCPOA, but I, I think um, that uh, going forward, everybody thinks that they've got to be a party to this. And how, how will that change the, uh, the dynamics uh, of returning to, uh, you know, the semblance, if not, you know, the full actuality of the JCPOA in your judgment? I think it's exactly right that the normalization agreements are very closely related to the you know, primary regional power struggle that is going on between Iran and its uh, associated uh, forces uh, and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. And what we saw during the Trump administration was an unequivocal alignment between both the Trump administration and the Gulf states uh, and the Trump administration in Israel, and then the you know third segment of that triangle essentially was closed uh, in part with the uh, normalization agreements, which while they have a positive outcome in terms of Israel's acceptance on the world stage and among its Arab neighbors, are in large part an arms deal uh, that is much more related to this dynamic between Saudi and the Gulf states vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Uh, and I think you're exactly right uh, that we are already seeing resistance to the Biden administration's approach to restoring and then building on the JCPOA. Uh, you know, and, and that 
buzzsaw, as you mentioned, if that buzzsaw had a name across uh, it, it would be Netanyahu, right? Who even before President Biden. How do you say buzzsaw uh, in Hebrew? <laughs> I'm not exactly Netanyahu. sure. It's, it's a newer, it's one of the newer words. Um, right. But, uh, but that's, that's to be expected. Uh, and, you know, in anticipation of that pushback, we've already seen lawmakers who support the Biden administration on this uh, uh, indicate their support for his approach. You know, just a few weeks ago, 151 members of the House of Representatives put out a letter urging him to follow through on his promise to reenter the agreement. Uh, and that's a significant number, uh, as Senator Webb knows, because uh, that's more than one third of one of the chambers of Congress. So that's essentially a signal to anyone who would try and tie the Biden administration's hands on this using legislation uh, that they're not gonna be able to sustain that legislation through Congress. So there is a real fight, uh, but I think it's one that the administration and its allies are prepared to have. Jim, we have covered uh, a lot of ground um, in the uh, uh, area between the uh, Mediterranean and the Jordan. And I sort of think we could go for a, uh, at least I could go for a, uh, a second hour. But uh, uh, I think uh, we're, we're at the end of the, the first hour. So it probably uh, just remains for us to... Uh, uh, thank uh, Jess Smith and Dylan Williams uh, of J Street uh, for uh, an incredibly uh, informative and uh, thought-provoking uh, discussion of this issue at a really liminal time uh, with a new administration with a very uh, different agenda uh, coming in. Uh, and also, Jim, thanks to you for uh, making the connection uh, with Jess. It's oh, good thanks to great, see. Great show. And of course, there's never a dull moment when you talk about the Middle East anyway. But unfortunately, as I said at the beginning, but uh, Jess and Dylan, thank you so much for, for being with us. And I, I just, I think we really did cover a lot of ground in a, in a substantive way. Uh, and, and we appreciate all of the information that you've provided and the work that you're doing. Jess Smith, Dylan Williams, J Street, thanks so much for joining Senator Webb and myself on Outside the Box. Thanks so much for having us today. Thanks, it's a pleasure. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.